Good morning. Good morning. You know that the last words of a person you will not see again are significant. It was a Sunday in June 2008, and Diane was going to the nursing home to help Dad with breakfast. I was getting Mom ready to see Dad before going to church. Mom had Alzheimer's, as some of you know, uh, but she still recognized Dad. In fact, every time I took her to see him, she'd say, Frank, what are you doing here? And Dad would say, oh, Evelyn. <laughs> every single time we went. Anyway, Diane went, fed him breakfast, which seemed to go well, and then Dad said, I want to go home. And Diane said, you mean to be with Jesus? And Dad said, no, my own home. After that, Dad's eyes closed, and God took him peacefully to be with himself. And I'll never forget those words. Why? Well, besides the humor, Dad did not know he would pass into eternity in that moment. His desire is that he wanted to be with his family, literally at home. It's quite significant that Jesus' last words express his desire for all his followers make disciples of all nations. And I'm not saying this to you as a missionary speaker. I am saying this to you as a follower of Jesus with you. These are his last words and expressed desire to his followers until he returns. Make disciples of all nations. They parallel his first words of invitation to his disciples, if you remember them, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So let's get back to basics. Mark Twain said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the things I do understand and how true that is. The basic teaching of the Bible is enough to bother us and at the same time to attract us. It upended the Roman culture of the day with its revolutionary character and beauty going against the values of the Roman culture of that day. And when we follow it, it upends our lives as well as bringing beauty to them and others. So what are some of these basics? Well, first one, what is a disciple? Which is the usual identity given in the Gospels for followers of Jesus, a disciple. Well, the dictionary definition is what you see, one who accepts and assists in spreading the doctrine of another, the follower of a master or teaching. There's two billion people in the world who call themselves Christians. We know that includes people born into Christendom, so to speak. They're born into a Christian religion because they're not, they haven't been born into a Muslim or a Hindu context, for instance, but who do not necessarily believe in Jesus. In the scriptures, there's no distinction. So in Acts, we read, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch, and that was probably a derogatory term because Christians kind of means little Christ ones. And there's no question that the disciples were believers and followers of Jesus. So if we know Jesus, 
something that we kind of need to remember. If we know Jesus, if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for us and rose again from the dead, and we have received him that way, we are, we are his disciple, we are his follower, and all the descriptions that go with it. In the organization that I work for, we say that a disciple of Jesus is one who is learning to live and love like Jesus and helps others do the same. And many people have found that simple definition very helpful. One, who, very simply, is learning to live and love like Jesus and helps others do the same. Learning the ways of Jesus in his upside-down kingdom. Often, unlearning other ways. Unlearning the ways, sometimes, of our family of origin. Unlearning the other ways that we've all learned are self-protective ways that keep us from other people, that keep us from being real, where we put a mask on. Unlearning those kinds of things. Learning the ways of love of Jesus. It's basic stuff. But it's radical enough to bother us when we consider the essence of Jesus' teaching that we all know. That essence is love God with your whole being and love others as yourself or better as he has loved us. And Jesus himself said that the scripture, that all of scripture is an explanation of this basic teaching, all because God first showed his love towards us in Christ. And he specified that kind of love towards others as seeking the well-being of those who do not treat us well. Saying, in fact, that our love for our enemies will be the mark that we belong to him. And we know that's radical. That does not come natural, naturally. It's revolutionary. It upends our lives when we embrace that, when God works that in us by his spirit, just like it upended the Roman Empire. It's revolutionary and extremely attractive and countercultural when it is practiced. Now, how are these last words of Jesus connected to loving God and others? Well, making disciples, my friends, is very simply bringing others to love God and others to the end of the earth. And whether those in our home or at church that are learning the ways of Jesus, or those outside who know little or nothing about the ways of Jesus, we model that to the best of our ability with all of our defects by the Spirit of God asking him to help us. Jesus, what does it look like to love the person next to me, especially when he hasn't treated me well. And in some, in some way, we know someone passed on the faith to us. Where would we be if that had not happened? There are two key observations for these last words. And before I go further, I just, as we consider these very famous kinds of passages, I'd just like to lead us in prayer. Our Father, we know that these are the last words of Jesus, and we ask you by your spirit 
to guide us in our thoughts and what it means for us where we live right now, that you would help us as your followers or help us to become your follower if we have not already done so by trusting in Jesus. So we give this time to you in our words and our thoughts. Guide us wherever we are in life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These words that we're about to read are all post-resurrection words. They would have no power or meaning if Jesus was still in the grave. But Jesus gives his followers this mandate after he conquered death. And our first witness is to a God who conquered death in Jesus. And the only way, the only way that we can ever think about loving people in some way the way Jesus has loved us is to know that Jesus has risen from the dead. And he inhabits us. as we live life here on this earth, right next to people, they would have no power if he was not risen. We love God and others, bringing others to love God and others because we have experienced the author of life who has brought us from death to life. We can always ask that question that I always ask. God has opened up our eyes. We can always ask the question, why has he opened up our eyes while the eyes of others remain closed? He's opened our eyes and he uses us to bring that message to open up the eyes of others. Secondly, the context of the disciples, they were still ethnocentric. What does that mean? Well, in this context, they were good nationalistic Jews. And there were two kinds of people in the world, Jews and everybody else. We think that way as well. Sometimes Americans think that way. We know there are culture wars today between Christians and the secular world. There was a huge culture war that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Jews wanted no part of non-Jews. Their lifestyles and practices were very different, just like the culture wars of today. And then Jesus comes along and he says to them, go and love all nations, all those people that you, the Jews, all those people that you consider dogs, because that's the way they looked at the Gentiles. Wrongly, but that's the way they looked at them. And bring them to me. Jesus says. Now, we may not be quite like the ethnocentric Jews of that day, but often churches today are not aware of the global purpose of God to have people who worship and follow him from every tribe and nation. And the fact that approximately three billion people have little access to Jesus unless we go and use all means possible to bring the gospel, that reality shows, you, shows us that oftentimes churches are not really on that same page with the necessity of bringing the gospel and making disciples of all nations. 
So we all want to learn in that. So we come to the last words of Jesus, some of the distinctive features of some of the passages. We're in Matthew 28, going to read verses 18 to 20. Familiar verses. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the most complete expression of what is called the Great Commission of Jesus, his third great commandment. Love God, love others, they're the first two. Make disciples, that's the third. Which is really the ultimate expression of the first and second commandment. Because loving God and loving others is the highest expression of our love. To invite and bring someone to know, love, and worship God, who will in turn do likewise. Because to do that, that is their ultimate well-being. There's lots of brokenness in the world that touches all of us. The gospel addresses it all. So this expression of the Great Commission gives us the four alls of the Great Commission. All authority to go to all nations to communicate all his teaching empowered by his presence all the time. Now, don't miss the claims. They're a basic Bible, but they're enormous. Jesus claims to have all authority in the universe to lead us on this journey. He's the rightful king of the universe. The New Testament gospel, what we call the good news, that word in Roman times was really kind of a royal announcement that was used of emperors when they won a battle. So for instance, the New Testament gospel is the royal announcement of the true king who brings peace and justice without violence, contrasted sharply with the gospel of Caesar. So for instance, we have this birthday announcement regarding Caesar, regarding Augustus Caesar, who was the emperor when Jesus was born through his life. This announcement, this gospel, speaks of providence giving the people, Augustus Caesar, sending him as a savior that he might end war and arrange all things. Since the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world. That was a birthday announcement for the king. You can well imagine then when Jesus comes along and when the writers of the, the eyewitnesses have come along and they announce another gospel, the gospel of the rightful king of the universe. And we can understand why that bothered some of the Roman authorities during the first three centuries and why persecution arose. Jesus, as the rightful king, was challenging the earthly authorities. And somewhere along the line, that happens with us, where we may have to make decisions. Who are we going to follow? Jesus or something else? 
Secondly, he claims that all his teaching is the most important thing in life to follow. That's as countercultural as it is for us in well-being as it was for them. And therefore, he claims, if it's, if it's the most important thing in life to follow, he claims that all nations, all people groups, need to know his teachings. Now, that's not political nations, but that's cultural linguistic groups. There's about 7,000 of them. We call them unreached people groups. Approximately 3 billion people with little access to Jesus because there are so few followers of him in those places. And access, my friends, that is what distinguishes places like the U.S. where there are believers in every aspect of society, right next to you in your job, perhaps, or in your neighborhood, which distinguishes places like the U.S. from places like what we call the 1040 window, that swath of area from North Africa through the Middle East, through West, Central, East Asia, Southeast Asia, where there are few believers, where people can be born, they can live, and they can die without ever meeting a Jesus follower. Can we imagine that? Can we imagine that? Living in a place where you will never meet a Jesus follower. That's what the church and what our mandate, our global mandate, is all about. There's plenty of need here. We know that well. But we're here. There's plenty of need there, so to speak. But few are there. And that's what distinguishes it. That's why we have Sundays like this. That's why we, whenever we have the opportunity, we talk about what is God doing in the world and we pray for the world. And lastly, he claims that he will be with us all the time to the end of time. These claims are huge. They're massive, and in the literal sense, they're incredible. You cannot believe them. All authority, all his teaching to all nations, and he's with us all the time. You cannot believe them unless Jesus is God. And as Bono of, Ir of the Irish group U2 would say, if Jesus Christ is who he said he was, then we cannot respond to him and his claims mildly. And for those who respond in repentance and faith, Jesus says there is a sign of initiation when we, where we identify with our true king and his kingdom and the forgiveness which gives us entrance to that. And that's what baptism is all about. That's why it's mentioned here. And depending on the circumstances, baptism could be, can be, dangerous and countercultural act that renounces your past belief. Whether that was past belief in an emperor God where you weren't going to bow down to him, or whether you renounce a major religion of the world in which you grew up. And it declares your loyalty to King Jesus and the people of his kingdom. And for, in some contexts, that can be easy. And in other contexts, my friends, it can be very, very difficult and dangerous. Back in the day, 
it was kind of dangerous. We turn to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read verses 44 to 49. Luke 24, 44 to 49. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending, you the, sending the promise of my Father upon you. The unique, this, this passage speaks of the uniqueness of the Bible and the gospel message. It is a coherent story with a capital S from beginning to end by eyewitnesses centering in the coming of God to our planet in Jesus to redeem and restore his creation from its brokenness. It is literally impossible that the Bible is simply the work of men when it was written over a 1,400-year span, and Jesus was recounting to them some of those writings that went back 1,400 years, by 40 different authors on three continents with this story that he was going to explain to them woven from Genesis to Revelation. And in Luke 24, we see Jesus telling this big story from the beginning. And what is the center of the message? The death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And that's the historical event, event that will one day set right all that the entrance of sin set wrong. And it begins now wherever the gospel is embraced. So Colossians 1 says that Jesus came to bring wholeness. He came to bring peace, shalom, and, rec and reconciliation through the blood of the cross to the whole universe, it says, to the things in heaven and on things on earth. The death of Christ, his blood, pays for the sin, injustice, and evil, and all its effects out there, all around us, that affect us, and where it starts in here, and it pays for that for all time. He is our peace. He is the world's peace. His forgiveness when received makes reconciliation possible between divided peoples of all kinds, whether they're divided by color, whether they're divided by ethnicity or religion, or by gross offenses that keep people apart, or family members that are estranged. It's the gospel, interestingly, it's the gospel of Luke that gives the illustration of the Good Samaritan, where you have these two people, the, the Jew that was beaten and left for half dead, and the Samaritan whom the Jew hated, that's the one who comes along and saves his life and spends everything for him. The challenge for us is that we, as his people, are to be known as the initiators of reconciliation and peace wherever we are. So Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why would he attach sons of God to being peacemakers? Because in some way, 
when we are peacemakers, when we are the initiators of reconciliation, when we promote the unity and the love between people, we are doing something that reflects the love of God, the love of the Trinity, the oneness that reflects Jesus' oneness with the Father. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And this message, of course, must go to all people groups, beginning right where we are. Yes, we begin here to the ends of the earth. Because remember, God's intention from the very beginning was not local. God's intention from the very beginning was to fill the earth with humanity in God's image. That starts in Genesis 1. It goes to Genesis 12, where he says all nations, it was always his intention, even with the creation of Israel, all nations will be blessed in your seed. Speaking of Israel, speaking of Jesus, and speaking of us who are the spiritual seed of Abraham. All nations will be blessed. That's God's intention. How does all this take place? Well, we have another verse in, in Acts chapter 1, which tells us that. And it's another familiar verse, Acts 1.8, which says... But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So for the enormous task of reaching three billion people spread out, Luke mentions the power of the Holy Spirit. Spontaneous witness of Jesus permeated the empire in the first three centuries. For the enormous task of changing people's hearts, repentance from our independence of wanting to control our lives and destiny apart from Jesus, there is the power of the Holy Spirit. For the enormous task of loving people next to us in ways that are genuine, in ways that reflect something of the genuineness of the God's love towards us, there's the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we know Jesus, then we are his disciples and we are witnesses of these things and the, we are the habitation of the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus Christ is who he said he was, then we cannot respond to him and his claims mildly. The last verse in John, if you turn back a page, if you're following, very familiar verse. This is the Great Commission statement in the Gospel of John. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Forty times in John, Jesus is referred to as being sent. And now he compares us to himself and says, you go as I have been sent. Like Jesus, we are sent to do the will of the Father. We are sent with our loving service. We are sent with our words as we have opportunity. Our journey with Jesus, following him as his disciples, will send us nearby to those like us, nearby to those unlike us in many ways, and far away to the billions unlike us who couldn't learn of Jesus in a community of believers if they wanted to, because there is little access to him unless we bring him. Jesus is a global God on a global journey, 
and our, and our journey with Jesus will somehow involve us in his travels near and far. Jesus sends his community, his, father, his followers, as the Father sent him. And if Jesus Christ is who he said he was, then we cannot respond to him and his claims mild. So what does make, making disciples look like as we consider Jesus' ministry as teaching, whether we as individuals or we as a church? First, we have an outward focus to those unlike ourselves. By nature, we gravitate towards those like us, who look like us, think like us, the same values, the same culture. It's safer. We all know that. It's more comfortable. But Jesus' ministry was very particular. We know that he went after the prostitutes, the lepers, the tax collectors, the marginalized of society. And the reality is, as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, we're exiles. We're more and more on the margins. And we see that in our days in ways that perhaps we haven't seen a generation ago where we didn't consider ourselves on the margins. The differences in our values and lifestyle are more pronounced, which makes things more uncomfortable, very similar to the, when the gospel penetrated the Roman Empire in the, in the first three centuries. And yet, Jesus was the friend of sinners on their turf where they lived. He went to them. He didn't simply invite them to come to where he fellowshiped. <laughs> Nothing wrong in that. He demonstrated the gospel beginning with his incarnation and going right to where they lived. If we invite people to our gatherings, which we often talk about, it presupposes there's a relationship to invite them. And it presupposes also that they will feel safe enough to come because in some way they've experienced our love for them. Secondly, we invest in a few people who will in turn do likewise. Who did Jesus invest in? The 12 disciples. For how long? Three years, full time. How did he invest in them? He lived with them, he taught them, he modeled life before them, he encouraged and comforted and rebuked them, and finally sent them out. And aside from Judas Iscariot, what did the disciples then do after Jesus returned to heaven? They made disciples of all nations throughout the Roman Empire, turning it upside down within a century. Now, few of us are going to be able to do that exactly like Jesus did except for the fact, except in our homes, where we live with the people in our homes, where we live with them 24-7. Well, not really 24-7 if they go out, but we live with them, we teach them, we model life, we rub shoulders, we t teach one another. Who are we to invest in? Who are we to invest in? Well, first of all, as I mentioned, parents invest in their children and husbands and wives in one another. Then leaders invest in, their church, in our church community, and in older believers, in young people. 
and then people in our everyday, whether before they know Jesus or after they know, or after they know Jesus. But we invest in people. And that speaks of our own time that we give to that and the time that we allow for that. Thirdly, we serve Christ himself by serving those in need. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that the judgment at the end of time is based on how they serve the needy. And notice all the nations are gathered, all the peoples. And Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Our loving, helpful service to the least of these, Jesus says, is the mark of being his follower. And notice, our verbal witness is not even mentioned here. How do we do that? Well, there is some time, there is truth to the statement that our actions can really speak louder than our words. Not that the words are important, but they're not mentioned here. This begins where we live and work every day. And we've talked about that in different times in this church. Then in our free time in the community, which is maybe a few hours a week compared to the 30, 40, 50, 60 hours a week where we, in, our, what our, in our everyday vocation. And then through this church, we're doing that. We're doing that. There's a work of God going on here. And we're thankful for that. But we're also aware that the American rhythm of life does not always lend itself well to serving others. Following Jesus brings us to examine our rhythm of life and the many pursuits of education, wealth, and career that are available to us. We want to look at all of them through the lenses of loving God and others and making disciples. And looking at all these things does cause us, we have to look at what are the rhythms of our lives? How do we make decisions? All that comes to bear on. Lastly, we recognize the sacred nature of our everyday vocations for God's purposes near and far. Your secular vocation is your sacred calling and ministry to the glory of God, wherever you are, manifesting who Jesus is and what it means to follow him with a desire and purpose of bringing others to love Jesus and others. Someone has well said, and we know this well, the workplace is the most strategic place of ministry for most of Christ's followers. It is where the hurting, the needy, and the lost are. It is the main community of people. We know that we're here to demonstrate to the unbelieving community around us who Jesus is. But paradoxically, very interestingly, those with non-religious vocations and parenthesis here, for the believer, there is no secular. For the believer, there is no secular. When we, when we eat and drink and do everything we do to the glory of God, that renders everything sacred.
Interestingly, those with non-religious vocations have more opportunity to do this than people like me who are in full-time Christian work. Not only, but the global task that remains, the all nations, is not going to be accomplished by traditional missionaries with a religious visa. In most of the unreached areas of the world, what I just mentioned, that 1040 window, religious workers are not allowed, and we would also say, we will not pretend to be something we are not. More than ever before in the history of following Jesus in his mission, those who are not professionally trained ministers need to ask, how might God use my vocation to reach some of the three billion where traditional missionaries cannot go? In his book, 32 Christians Who Changed the World by Glenn Sunshine, John Stone Street, uh, in his preface, writes this. Most of these Christians were not employed as pastors or missionaries. Instead, they worked across various cultural spheres as if Christian truth mattered as much there as in any church. They sought to educate because they believed God is truth. They sought to liberate because they knew every person bears God's image and that truth sets us free. They sought to create because in creating we worship the creator. They sought to alleviate suffering because God had originally created a good world. They fought injustice because God is just and wants justice in his world. They lived as if Christ is king because they knew he is. And that highlights the Great Commission and the holistic character that it, of it that affects every area of life. So this is our mindset. The calling of every Jesus follower is to love him, love others, and to make disciples of all nations. I leave you with three questions. Questions that look like questions. What does it look like for me to love Jesus and make disciples in my network of relationships? Real simple. We have to ask that. Where is that happening, or what does that look like, or God, what do you want there? What does that look like? Secondly, what does it look like to love those outside my natural inclinations, serving the least of these? And thirdly, what does it look like to view my everyday vocation as my sacred calling and ministry for God's purposes near and far? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for your spirit that we're going to sing about in a moment. Your spirit that fills us, that enables us, that sends us out, that makes us, as we submit to you and walk with you, that produces your fruit in us and makes us more like Jesus. Show us your ways, Lord, we pray. Teach us your paths. Use us for your glory in our every day as we submit ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name.